Welcome back. Thursday, August 31st, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. I've got Mr. Bill to my north. I've got David Dahl, my producer, due west for everyone else, including whether you're north or west. You can get in on the show at 602-508-0960. Don't want to give short shrift to the south and the east. Yes, we also zone. like those of the southern yes. and easterly. Yeah, areas. I saw that you were yeah, you were going to correct me. We're not we're not we're not geographically profiling anyone. 6025080960 whatever cardinal point you are on the compass. As we are all starting the new school year, I was looking up some polling from Rasmussen. As students return to the classroom this fall, more than four times as many Americans rate public schools poor as rate them excellent. Only 8% of American adults rate the performance of public schools in America today as excellent. 22% rate America's schools good. 31% rate them fair. 35% give public schools a poor rating. And, of course, as we've seen from our nation's report card, I was referring to it as NAEP, the National Assessment of Education Progress, with Mr. Horn yesterday. This year, teenagers' math and reading performance has continued to fall with math scores showing the largest ever declines since the report card began tracking long-term trends in student performance. So many thoughts come with this. First, who have we turned public schools over to? For far too long, parents, or at least concerned and conservative parents, were absent from the scene, assuming the best, assuming schools were about the same as when they were students. When they were awakened, by the teaching and curricula, curricula, especially in 2020, they, like Rip Van Winkle, were awakened to a surprisingly changed world. Teacher quality had changed dramatically. Teaching had changed dramatically. Subject matter had changed dramatically. Those of us in the education reform movement had been warning for years about the increased money going to education with the flat or decreasing output. As far back as 1983, still one of the best reports on education in America was disseminated from the Department of Education, maybe one of about five good things that department has ever done. And that was, as I say, nearly 40 years ago. The report was called A Nation at Risk. Its opening lines are worth repeating and could be written just as much today as they were in 1983. Quote, our nation is at risk. Our once unchallenged preeminence in commerce, industry, science, and technological innovation is being overtaken by competitors throughout the world. This report is concerned with only one of the many causes and dimensions of the problem, but it is the one that undergirds American prosperity, security, and civility. We report to the American people that while we can take justifiable pride in what our schools and colleges have historically accomplished and contributed to the United States and the well-being of its people, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. What was unimaginable a generation ago has begun to occur. Others are matching and surpassing our educational attainments. The report went on. If an unfriendly foreign power had, intemp- had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. We have even squandered the gains in student achievement made in the wake of the Sputnik challenge. Moreover, we have dismantled essential support systems which helped make those gains possible. We have, 
in effect, been committing an act of unthinking, unilateral, educational disarmament. Our society and its educational institutions seem to have lost sight of the basic purposes of schooling and of the high expectations and disciplined effort needed to attain them. Think about 1983 and Sputnik. More time has transpired since 1983 to now than between Sputnik and that report in 1983. Kind of interesting. We have allowed this to happen to ourselves. That's the takeaway. We have committed unilateral disarmament. That's a hell of a statement. If that phrase finds a special notice today, perhaps it's because it comes with memories of exhausted and exhausting Democrats who are back in power when, in the day, they were all for a literal unilateral nuclear freeze or disarmament to appease the Soviet Union, a unilateral disarmament in geopolitics as much as in our own sovereign abilities. Names attached to that disarmament movement are like some ghoul in a movie of whom we might say they're back. Those names, of course, included John Kerry and Joe Biden. In any event, back to education. As a country, we spend nearly $900 billion a year on public elementary education and over $18,000 per pupil. For that, we get scores and outputs that over the years, if you charted a graph, were flat, 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 and now on the decline. More money, less result. Today, about one-fifth of our nation's fourth graders attain an F in mathematics. About 30% of our nation's eighth graders attain an F in mathematics. And 40% of our 12th graders get an F in mathematics. About 34% of our fourth graders attain an F in reading. About 27% of our eighth graders attain an F in reading. About 30% of our 12th graders attain an F in reading. In U.S. history, about 40% of our eighth graders attain an F in history, while 50% of 12th graders get an F. Here's the takeaway. You notice those trends, and you notice that the longer you stay and spend time in school, the worse you perform relative to what is expected. $900 billion. That last one, U.S. history, is, of course, my major concern, though illiteracy and mathematical illiteracy should not be forgotten here either. Without those foundations, you cannot assimilate an understanding of history or anything else. Think on that history issue a moment and ask yourself if the receipts are not already in, showing we have all been shortchanged, unless the task is to denigrate or hate this country. Then there's, I suppose, a real win we can point to. David McCullough, the great historian who passed away last year, testified to the U.S. Senate on this some years back and got it all exactly right and exactly ignored. A few excerpts from his testimony, he wrote, Quote, I think the problem is essentially that we have been teaching our teachers the wrong way. We have too many teachers who have graduated with degrees in education, and they are assigned to teach history or biology or mathematics or literature, and they don't know the subject. Let me just make an aside before I go further with his testimony. Let's talk about those education schools and education degrees. One teacher, Daniel Buck, recently wrote up, in the Wall Street Journal, quote, I studied for a master's degree in education at the, university of, at the University of Wisconsin. My program was batty. We made Black Lives Matter friendship bracelets. We passed around a popsicle stick to designate whose turn it was to talk. We read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for our students doing the same. And our final projects were acrostic poems or ironic rap videos. At the time, I thought this was unique. 
Surely other teach pro- teacher prep programs focused on cognition and ha- behavioral management and child psychology. Alas, my program was, com- was mild compared with what other graduates must suffer. One of the University of Wisconsin schools defines education, quote, as a social justice and change agent. Another one commits itself to anti-racism. Each program exhibits a philosophy of education called critical pedagogy, made popular by Brazilian Marxist Paulo Ferrer, that envisions schools as places not of instruction but societal change. Ferrer, one of the authors assigned most often in school education, mapped the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy onto the teacher-student relationship and advocated for what he believed was a liberatory education. He cited the Maoist and Leninist revolutions as ideals of his thought in action. Where Ferrer shifts from Marxist ramblings to practical advice, he encourages teachers to spur their students toward discontent with the world around them. If there's practical learning involved, it's likely to be about how to discuss LGBTQ issues with three-year-olds. The same philosophy encourages action civics. Rather than teaching a straightforward history curriculum, educators are expected to encourage their students to advocate for social change. So while other countries teach reading and teach math and teach history, we teach how we feel about reading, math, and history. And we don't train to think. We train to indoctrinate. Back to David McCullough. He put it that, quote, the teacher who doesn't know the subject is up against a big handicap in three ways, and consequently, therefore, the students are. Anybody trying to teach a subject they don't know has right away got a problem, but it's also impossible to love what you don't know, just as it is impossible to love someone you don't know. And we all know from our experience in school, those of us who were lucky enough to have wonderful teachers, the best teachers were the teachers that were really excited about what they were teaching. Their enthusiasm, their affection for what they were teaching was tangible. I want to pick up on that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I was talking to you about some testimony to uh, the United States Senate that the great historian um, David McCullough passed about a year ago gave on uh, the problem of teaching. So we're thinking about going back to school. Uh, a lot of these issues are ripe again. The most haunting statement in his testimony was this, quote, if we raise generation after generation of young Americans who are historically illiterate, we are running a terrible risk for this country. You could have amnesia of a society which is as detrimental as amnesia of an individual, close quote. Let me give you something even more haunting. These are public schools we're talking about, which is to say government schools. Your government is doing this to your and its own country. I'm reminded here of something C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man. He wrote, The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Close quote. Let's make sure we get that. By keeping our children miseducated and by miseducating them, We subject them to propaganda they easily buy into. Now, hopefully we understand what the task of education as we have come to know it here has become. And let's take heed, too, of the title of that book I just mentioned from C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. It's a haunting title in its own right, isn't it? 
The Marxists, folks, they're hard at work, and their work is paying off. I usually say, paraphrasing Flannery O'Connor, we have to push as hard against the culture as pushes against us. Looking at the time they've had, the money they've been given, and the results they are producing, I think we now have to push even harder. Anyway, something to keep in mind is your children are going back to school. Um, a lot I want to do with you all today, and of course you can weigh in on any of it, 602 Young David, our political pin of the day is what? Our kind of man, Wallace for governor. George Wallace for governor. Yeah. Alabama, 1962. Yeah, this one's from uh, from 70. Oh, a re-election? Uh, well, oh, yeah, he left he, and then, yeah, left, right, right. gave it to his wife. Yeah. And... That's got to be one of the sickest things in the world. Yeah. yeah. You know that story? Yeah. You want to do it? Uh, how he uh, kept his wife's cancer diagnosis from her during yeah. the campaign when she was running for election Yeah. yeah. Uh, to ensure that she would get the, get the victory. Yeah. Awful, awful situation. Awful man uh, for many years. And um, go and watch his appearance on Firing Line or really any interview from those days. To some credit, he repented later in life, and uh, I believe he did so. He confessed uh, many of his sins at a uh, black church, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it's uh, th- th- there was a movie or documentary about this, as I seem to recall it. It was an obviously, how could it not be, emotionally beautiful scene. But he had wrecked a lot of havoc and damage on our country and stood for some awful things. Mm-hmm. Uh, segregation now, se- segregation forever. It's the same notion that Ibram Kendi preaches and teaches in his book, How Not to Be, How to Be an Anti-Racist, when he talks about the only remedy for past discrimination is current discrimination, the only remedy for current discrimination is present discrimination, and the only remedy for future discrimination is future discrimination. Kendi writes that. That's a literal quote from his book, his most popular book. It's a little different, a little different from what George Wallace said in 1963 at his inaugural address in Alabama. It's just that, as we say, the race was on the other foot. The question it makes me think about, David, you open this thought up with my, uh, something I come back to from time to time. It makes me think about, is it, um, is it racism that's the problem, which is to say discrimination based on race? Is that the problem? Um, or is it the race that's the problem? If you talk to the modern left, they embrace Ibram Kendi full on. He gets great speaking gigs, he gets great Netflix um, uh, deals, he gets a, a great center at Boston University. They're seemingly okay with racial discrimination, so long as it's against the right red, white race. Those of us who supported the civil rights movement and legacy of Martin Luther King and the Nonviolent Student Coordinating Committee and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and uh, the kinds of things that Robert Woodson was marching for, and the kinds of things that John Lewis then was marching and getting beaten up for, and the kinds of things that Ralph Abernathy was marching for, kinds of things that um, Baird Rustin was working for, the kinds of things that we celebrated uh, earlier this week 
on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh, great uh, speech and march on Washington, D.C., uh, 60th anniversary, sorry, um, those kinds of things would have had no truck with and no tolerance for what Ibram Kendi said. There was no good race. There was no bad race. There was no better race. There was no worse race. It was all judgments by race, and thus all racism and thus all discrimination based on race was the evil, and to me still is. To me still is. Let me see if I can uh, summon that um, Abraham Lincoln fragment on slavery that is so poignant, and that is such a good testimony to the natural right and the natural law understanding of this. He said, if A can prove, however conclusively, that he may of right enslave B, why might not B snatch the same argument and prove equally that he may enslave A? You say A is white and B is black. It is color, then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care, by this rule you are to be slaved to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. Oh, you do not mean color exactly? You mean that whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be slaved to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest, and if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another very well, and if he can make it his, he has the right to enslave you. Take out the words enslave and slave and just use discrimination and discriminate, and you have the same exact old fool argument that Plato wrote about in the Republic. It's the argument of Thrasymachus. Whoever has the most power defines what is just. Well, that's not what we do here. That's simply not who we are. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Rick is in Phoenix. Hello, Rick. My friend, how are you? How are you? I'm doing well. I want you to know this is an unprecedented call. Okay, I'm 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 on tenter hooks. Be- because unprecedented is the new buzzword. Is it? You no, know, it was a- unprecedented storm in California. Oh unprecedented yeah. <laughs> hurricane yeah. in Florida. Yeah. Unprecedented fires in Louisiana. So this is an unprecedented call. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like it. I like so, it. This uh, is as yeah, this is a word as misused as Joe Biden misuses the word literally. That's right. That's right. Right on target, Seth, yeah. as always. Yeah. So listen, I've got a suggestion for this new mask mandate that's coming out. Yes, sir. I want to suggest that when they mandate that for everyone that wears a mask, they also have to wear a tinfoil hat to protect them against TDS. That's Trump derangement syndrome that's being spread by the lunatic left and the malevolent media. You know, the only thing, I like it except for this reason, this thing, Rick. You know, I have a, um, I have a, a predisposition against adding things that are unnecessary so you'll yes. notice Mr. Bill's voice at the opening of every hour doesn't say 
portions of this show are pre-recorded like everyone else. Right. He just right. says portions of the show are recorded because there's no such thing as pre-recording. It's all recording. Right. <laughs> so That's we're right. getting rid of getting rid of and and I'm I'm, I'm against the idea of a price point. I don't know how this crept into our language. What happened to just the word price or cost? Why is it now two words? Uh, We could go on and on here, but uh, it's beginning to sound like a George Carlin thing. So my only adaptation of that to your point is if someone's wearing a mask outside, they don't need to wear a tinfoil hat because we're all looking at them as if they were. And knowing that they would like to. It's an unnecessary thing. It's a land yap, if you will. Excellent point. Excellent That's my point. only response. <laughs> well, I just came up with that kind of thinking of Rush Limbaugh's uh, old saying. Uh, he used humor to illustrate absurdity or something to that effect. But listen, Seth. Yeah, you- there's something important about that. Hadley Arcus, one of my great uh, favorite political philosophy professors, uh, he's been on the show a few times. His most recent book is Mere Natural Law. He, uh-huh. he points out that uh, all great humor is based on fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. And all great comedians understand this, even if they don't think about it. Because if yeah. you think about for someone to get the joke— there has to be a common basis of understanding about the underlying truth that is being uh, ridiculed or twisted, torted, if you will, uh, uh, given a torsion to make people laugh. All great humor is based on a fundamental truth. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's excellent. That's another great observation. That's why I love listening to your show. I get such an education. Well, I get a laugh. I hope you get a laugh. Laughter's important these days. I get get a lot of those, too. Okay, good. And and speaking of education, thank you so much for your interview yesterday with uh, Tom Horn. Wasn't that special? Yeah. I haven't talked to him in forever, and it was was just about time to do it, you know? Yeah, it was informative, and, and it was encouraging. You know, yes, uh, it's encouraging so, to know you have someone like that at the helm, you know? Yes, yes, and I appreciate the work he's doing, and wow. Uh, someone made the point, uh, Some one of the callers yesterday said he's the only one, you know, in our state leadership that is doing this. I mean, we love Kim Yee, obviously, but that's, it's just not her bailiwick. But when it comes to education, yeah. really, he's the only state leader who, who can stand up to, to the crazy, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not a battle of good versus bad anymore, as he says that it's a battle of good versus crazy. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I heard him say that, and he's right about that. Yeah, right. yeah. Listen, Seth, I appreciate the yeoman's work that you did with the uh, COVID uh, hoax, and uh, are you familiar with Dr. Peter McCullough? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Uh, Sebastian Gorka had an interview, did an interview with him this afternoon, absolutely explosive Mm -hmm. he talks about all of the crazy stuff that went on and the miss uh, you know misapplication miss uh uh, medication and and all uh, mistreatment all that and also talked a lot about what to do uh you know if if it raises its ugly head again the mask issue uh, the the uh, COVID issue. Oh, the COVID issue. I'll check yeah, it yeah. out. Well, I thank you for yeah. the tip, sir. All right. Much you obliged. Bet. You, you bet. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Jim Rockford. I'm not in at the tone. Leave your name and number. I'll get back to you. Beep.
hey, Jimmy, it's Angel. That's how that show always would open up, and it was a focus with a picture. The camera was focused its picture on the telephone, old telephone, attached to David, young David, you won't remember these things, <laughs> an answering machine. A Suzanne's phone? I, I don't know about <laughs> that, but it was an answering machine the size of the entire telephone. And it... Uh, well, I've been, I've been keeping up it, on my Rockford since we last discussed Oh, okay. It. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It hey, was, Jim, the check bounced. Yeah. Hey, Jim. To, yeah, exactly. Put it or, exactly. Or put it with the others. <laughs> and what was his... What was his attorney's name, the female attorney oh, friend? Beth. Beth. Beth something. Was it Beth, Beth Davenport, something. maybe? Something, something like that? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Someone wants to do a little political philosophy. I love that. It's Mike and Carefree. Hello, Mike. How are you? Hi, Seth. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, um, I, I listened to you because I just was recently rereading. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. I was just recently uh, rereading the Republic. Yes, sir. And, uh, and it occurred to me, as you said, that uh, we don't have a system where uh, the, the, po- the powerful decide what is just, but in fact, that's what the whole woke movement is trying to do. Oh, yes, you're quite yeah. right. They believe might makes right. They, you're quite right about that, Mike. I mean, and without an independent judiciary and with an ever-expanding executive and therefore uh, administrative state, the people making the, the just the rules are in fact just a a can be a minority can be a majority but the the individual rights are go, are going by the wayside yeah you're right it's the flexing of the muscle and it can be a tyranny of the majority it can equally as you point out be a tyranny of the minority um you're absolutely right about that point and i think what i was trying to impart when i said we don't do that here I kind of meant that more as an eternal thing. That's not how we were set up to do it here. It's not what our founding was about. It's not what Lincoln was about. It's not what our Republican form of government was about. In fact, the entire notion of that entire thread was about reducing both those very problems, tyrannies of the majority, but equally tyrannies of the minority. Exactly. That's the battle before us. Yes, yes. Well put. Um and and that is a debate that Lincoln was very attuned to in that section I read from him. He went back to it a couple different times, uh, it, that that argument from the Republic. Uh, it's the argument of Thrasymachus, right, that justice is, is, is in whatever the powerful or the most strong decide it is, right? It's the power of the stronger. And uh, Lincoln went to that a lot in his arguments against slavery, partly in what I read to you earlier from his uh, fragment— on, uh, on, you know, on on these false notions of what creates justice. Um, he s- closed his famous Cooper Union speech uh, saying, let us have the faith that right makes might, and in that faith let us lead the e- to the end and dare our, to do our duty as we understand it. And as young David, uh, my producer, was telling me, everyone loves to quote his uh, ending, his proration of his second inaugural with malice toward none and charity towards all. They forget the next part which is with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. So he, he well, believed in this as well. This, this, was a, this, was, this was a deep theme of Lincoln's, um, as it was a deep theme of all Greek and ancient wisdom, um, as it is no longer the theme in the modern progressive Marxist left. That's why they win by revolution and violent revolution at that. Well, and with, 
with Lincoln, he didn't try to say, well, I think everybody's equal intellectually or physically or this, that, and the other. He, he said, said equal that's right, that's right. Under the law. Right. In fact, he was, he was notoriously, and people try to paint him as a racist because he wasn't sure whether or not the black community was, was intellectual equal. But he felt they were the moral and legal equal. The equal of any man as man sees man, the equal of any human as man sees human, and the right to eat the bread of uh, the sweat that their brow earned as any man was. Frederick Douglass, interesting uh, vignette about Frederick Douglass. When he met Lincoln, uh, and I think I'm right, I think Frederick Douglass was the first black man to walk into the White House. I think I'm right about Correct. that. Uh, Frederick yes. Douglass said, Abraham Lincoln... This is so powerful, it gives me chills, Mike. You probably know what I'm going to say. Frederick Douglass said when he met Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was the first white man that did not make him feel like a minority, like a black man. The first yeah. white man, he said, I, I'm, str- I'm struggling with to use appropriate parlance, but the way Douglass put it was Frederick Douglass. Yeah. He said, Abraham Lincoln was the first white man to not make me feel like a black man. And Frederick Douglass didn't start off liking Lincoln. No, 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 he did not. And Lincoln wasn't sure what to make of him. Uh, But the story of there, and my gosh, the speeches and eulogy of Frederick Douglass over him, I wish we taught it in the schools. You know, if we taught it in the schools, 1619 would disappear. You know that? If If we taught what Frederick Douglass just said about Lincoln, never mind about the country, uh, uh... 1619 would disappear. You know the story of Lincoln going to Richmond after the Civil War? Do you know that story? The Emancipation, the emancipation, uh, the emancipation uh, monument is based on it. Yes. Oh, you do. Yeah, you know your Lincoln man. Actually, I can't. I can't. Oh, you know your stuff, man. It's a beautiful moment. He goes. He gets off. Right. He he gets off onto the land there. He gets off to the shore there, and all these freed slaves start bowing to him. You want to you want to tell the audience what he said? And he said, from this point forward, you shall bow to no man but only to God. Bam. Bam. Where'd you learn all and your Lincoln, Mike? Is it from listening to this show? Where'd you learn all your Lincoln? I from this show, and I started rereading it years ago. Isn't it beautiful? I mean, it's such poetry. It's such poetry. And the great crime is we deprive our students of this poetry. It's a great crime that we deprive them of this. Well, and that they allowed Lincoln to be besmirched. Yeah. When when and that and that uh, statue to be besmirched yep. when Frederick Douglass was the man who who spearheaded yep. the financing of it. Yes, yes. Black children saved their pennies. That's to right. Pay for that statue. That's right. And by the way, Lincoln's statues have been uh, have been destroyed, have been torn down. Not only during the BLM riots. Uh, my buddy uh, Hughes sent me the other day a story of uh, of a uh, of a uh, a defacement of it in. Um, in uh, in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan, uh, spray painting Lincoln. They don't know what they're doing. These people know not what they do. They have no idea what they're thinking and what they're talking about. Just no clue. It's going back to the basic Marxism. It useful re- idiots. Destroy everything. Oh, yes, useful idiots, but also destroy everything that's good. Destroy yes. everything that's good. Absolutely. Oh, Mike, thank you. Uh, you, you. You moved my emotions here. This was wonderful. So glad to... So glad to have you. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Portions of this show have been sponsored by Y-Refi. They've been uh, getting a great response from you, the audience. Uh, It's true what we say about them. Of course it is. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return investing with Y-Refi, and that investment is not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's in a secure collateralized portfolio not tied to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. You can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with there being absolutely no fees. There is uh, no reduction or attack on your principal if you ever need your money back. And you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. If you're not sure, if you trust this economy with all the uh, all the uncertainties, uh, given not only inflation but the stock market, Y-Refi might just be the place for you. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. That's 888 888- why refi 24 um so much wonder you know what we haven't done we haven't byron new york did a really good job on uh taking a look at the yields from the debate last week i told you they'd be the debate would be forgotten i told you it would be and we'd be off to talking about the next one which i guess is at the reagan library at the end of uh september which i was about to say the end of this month end of next month next month starts tomorrow Labor Day weekend. Labor Day, Labor Day. I, my, my memories of Labor Day are mostly the Jerry Lewis telethon. And um, uh, I don't know if, if you're me. I, I loved the telethon. Like me. I loved the telethon. I loved the Jerry Lewis telethon. I mailed away for all the literature. I loved getting all the literature back. There was something about Jerry Lewis. There was something shameful, too, about the way he was dispatched and dismissed from it before it became entirely... Uh, is more abundant the right word before it became entirely uh, gone before it died um, you think about what he did um, 2.5 billion dollars I was looking this up the other day 2.5 billion dollars to help muscular dystrophy research uh, if you go to the UCLA Medi- uh, Medi- hosp- uh, hospital and medical center at UCLA you see a big building called the Jerry Lewis Center for neuromuscular diseases Mike Gallagher and I were talking about this once. The host, Mike Gallagher. Why were we? I'll think about it over the break. Maybe I can. I think we had an exchange on it. All right. 602-5089-60. We'll be right back.